For a first scripture reading, could you turn please to uh, the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 4. You'll find it in page uh, 1495 if you have a pew Bible, 1495. We'll break into the uh, chapter at verse 12 when you find that. Hopefully when you come in this morning you'll have uh, received a Christmas card from the church. See as people from uh, giving out individual cards. Um, but if you do want to give out individual cards, as some people do from year to year, please, please, please don't just leave them on the table in the middle room. Uh, they'll sit there probably till after Christmas. If you want to give out individual cards, please give them out to the people that you have uh, written them for. Uh, and make sure that you don't you know, have cards as has been in, been in the past. People that were in membership years ago and have moved away. Um, we find cards like that over the past few years. So um, you should have Matthew 4 in front of you now. Uh, we're going to break in at verse 12. It's after the temptation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Satan's departed from uh, the Savior uh, to uh, come back at him at another time, more convenient time. Uh, but we uh, break in at verse 12 of Matthew chapter 4 where It says, now, when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he departed to Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the regions of Sebulun and Naphtali, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, the land of Sebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Amen. So on that note, beloved, let us turn to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah uh, chapter 8. We'll read from verse 19 through to verse 7 of chapter 9. Uh, You'll find that page 1069 if you have a pew Bible. 1069. Isaiah chapter 8, verse 19, this is the word of the living God. And when they say to you, seek those who are mediums and wizards, who whisper and mutter, should not a people seek their God? Should they seek the dead on behalf of the living? To the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. They will pass through it hard pressed and hungry, and it shall happen when they are hungry that they will be enraged and curse their king and their God and look upward. Then they will look to the earth and see trouble and darkness, gloom of anguish, and they will be driven into darkness. Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed as when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Sebulun and the land of Naphtali, 
and afterward more heavily oppressed her by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan in the Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. You have multiplied the nation and increased its joy. They rejoice before you according to the joy of harvest, as men rejoice when they defied the spoil. For you have broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor as in the day of Midian. For every warrior's sandal from the noisy battle and garments rolled in blood will be used for burning and fuel of fire. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with justice with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. The seal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Amen. Beloved, just let's pray before we turn to the exposition of God's word. Our gracious and loving God, we humbly ask that you would come now in the power of the Holy Spirit, whom you sent into the word, the world to convict and to convince of sin and judgment to come. Sent into the world also to be our teacher. We pray that the Holy Spirit would come so that we might understand what the Bible says. That we, that we who are here this morning might meet the one of whom the Bible speaks. Even your beloved Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And indeed, amidst all of the darkness of our sin and distress caused by that, Lord, may that be banished in the joy and light of that which Jesus brings, because he is the one who has come to bring peace to us. He's the one who has come to deliver us from our sins, to bring, you, to bring us into, into your household. And so we ask, Lord, for your name's sake, that you would help us to concentrate on all that is said and done this Lord's Day morning. To the glory of Jesus Christ, we ask it. Amen. Amen. My friends, it's not uncommon today to hear of someone say, or maybe during the course of a conversation with someone, uh, they will share with you that they are having counselling. Or they will say, I'm seeing a counsellor for that. Now, um, I remember in a previous generation, such a, a statement would not have been offered willingly because it would have been seen as a, an admission of weakness. And uh, so you wouldn't want to volunteer uh, that type of information. Now, thankfully, much of the stigma associated with counselling by an earlier generation has been removed. And today there is indeed a helpful recognition that many folk at some point in their lives will need to go to someone else or to somewhere else in order to find help and wisdom and encouragement. Certainly the complexities of modern life, both public and private, reveal very quickly to us our need of help in many areas of life. 
And as society becomes increasingly fractured, as relationships become more and more disengaged, it isn't surprising that it seems like our whole society seems to be facing the possibility of a kind of total nervous breakdown. You know, when people listen to a 24-hour bombardment of news, when you read your newspapers, when all of those little things ping on your phone from your new your news feeds, you know, whether it's your iPhone or your uh, laptop, iPad, or your uh, computer, uh, you, can, you can understand why an observation like it seems like the whole of society is heading towards a nervous breakdown has a, a degree of credibility to it. You know, people are so wrapped up in themselves in the here and now uh, that we could be tempted to think that all of this is unique to our generation and to the circumstances that we're facing as a generation. Uh, that is because we live in this uh, type of cyberspace generation. It's on account of all of that. That life for us has become increasingly complex. So much so that we are unable to handle the affairs of our time. After all, um, life was so much more simpler in the past. You know, how many, how many times have you heard your grand saying that to you? Yeah. You know, I've used it myself. And I'm sure if we ask for a show of hands, all of you who are of an older generation will say, you know, things were so much simpler in, in the past. And then, of course, we have to take a reality check. Because we just need to go and read the history books and be corrected. And we could certainly read our Bibles and find that in every generation, men and women need a counsellor. Indeed, in every generation, men and women need a wonderful counsellor, the wonderful counsellor. Isaiah wrote this to a people 700 years before the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. People who, without any uh, newspapers, iPhones, you know, iPads or whatever, would have been acutely aware on a daily basis that they were confronted by war and distress and darkness. Indeed, they were aware, at least some of them were aware, that this kind of darkness, which sought to engulf them from the outside, was more than matched by the darkness which sought to undo them from the inside. And if we doubt that statement, then we need only, as I say, turn to the Bible for ourselves to have it verified. So here are a few statements, a few references from the early chapters of Isaiah's prophecy to back up that claim that, uh, you know, this generation to which um, Isaiah was writing, you know, were aware of a, a darkness that was engulfing them 
from uh, not only from the outside but also from the inside. You know, they were aware that um, they were in need of a counsellor. They were in need of help. Now, the first reference, you don't need to look it up. You can take a note off it if you're writing, taking notes, uh, but you can certainly read the opening chapters of uh, Isaiah later to see this. But the, the first reference from Isaiah chapter 3, verse 6, we have a hint of a circumstance with which we are not unfamiliar in our own generation. Namely, a crisis in leadership, and somewhat cynically. Isaiah has the individual saying, When a man takes hold of his brother in the house of his father, saying, You have clothing, you be our ruler. Let these ruins be under your power. Or as I think it's the NIV translates it, you know, you have a coat in your back. Uh, so uh, if you've got a coat in your back and you rule over these heap of ruins. Uh, in other words, the need for leadership is in such a, a crisis state that the fact that somebody has a nice coat in their back is a suitable basis for suggesting that that person perhaps would be the ideal individual to become the mayor or the prime minister. It's ridiculous, isn't it? But that's how dire the situation had become. In chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, remember, 700 years before the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, materialism and false religion were alive and well. Chapter 2, 7 and 8, Their land is full of silver and gold, and there is no end to their treasures. Their land is also full of horses, and there is no end to their chariots. Their land is also full of idols. False worship. They worship the work of their own hands, and that which their fingers have made. Chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, Woe to those who join house to house. They add field to field till there is no place where they may dwell alone in the midst of the land. In my hearing, the Lord of hosts said, Truly, many houses shall be desolate, great and beautiful ones without inhabitant. You see this today, don't you? You know, cities, houses join side by side, you see. This today, you know, and you see it repeated in history also. You know, stately homes, desolate. Stately homes fallen into ruin. Many places have been turned into flats. 700 years before Christ. The issues of wine, women and song and superstition were the issues of the day. Again from chapter 5, verse 11. Woe to those who rise up early in the morning that they may follow strong drink. They don't care if it's 5 o'clock somewhere or anywhere. As long as they have their drink. Woe to those who rise up following intoxicating drink. Who continue until night. Till wine inflames them. And then the song, verse 12. The harp and the strings, the tambourine and flute and wine are in their feasts, but but they do not regard the work of the Lord, nor consider the operation of his hands. Like the chapter 3, verse 16, the daughters of Sion, 
are haughty and walked, walk with outstretched necks and wanton eyes, walking and skipping as they go, making a jingling with their feet, ornaments on their jingling ornaments on their ankles. Sort of has a contemporary ring to it, doesn't it? You know, you know friends, there is a reason, isn't it? There is a reason why we roll our eyes when people say to us, I don't know why anybody would spend their time reading that Bible. You know, it's such an ancient book. It's totally irrelevant. You know, the person that makes that statement's never read the Bible. Certainly never read the opening chapters of Isaiah. Several hundred years before the birth of Christ, wine, women, song, superstition. Well, you'll have noticed in our reading, which began at verse 19 of chapter 8, superstitions were the emphasis that the prophet is pointing out at that point. When they say to you, seek those who are mediums and wizards, who whisper and mutter, should not a people seek their God? Should they seek the dead on behalf of the living? This is 700 years before Jesus. And now here we are, 2,000 years beyond Jesus, and it's not unusual, maybe it's quite routine, to have some individual on morning TV or uh, in some other outlet, you know, the psychic nights that they have uh, advertised in public houses, they often describe with theatrical, uh, you know, words of insight, wisdom and counsel that they are in contact with the dead. Or that they have uh, some reading from the stars in order to impart wisdom and counsel to people. You know, people who seek the living, uh, seek the dead on behalf of the living. Not far removed from what Isaiah is writing here. You know, what, what have we learned in almost, what, two and a half, three thousand years? We've, we've learned absolutely nothing. The great advance, uh, the great advanced generation of uh, the UK, you know, with all its uh, banking and technical ability, this proud, arrogant, once great nation. Are we really the same as they were in need of a wonderful counsellor? Yes, absolutely. This nation is need is in need of the counsel of Christ. And so you see the basic problem, beloved, it's the same now as it was then. The problem wasn't due to an absence of information. It wasn't uh, because there was no counsel to which men and women might respond. It wasn't that there was an absence of truth to which they could tune their ears. The problem was that they choose to listen to lies instead. Buying up to date. In fact, that's what it says in Isaiah 8.20, isn't it? The prophet says to the law and the testimony, 
If they do not speak according to this word, it's because there is no light in them. Or as some uh, modern translations have it, or they have no dawn. The light won't dawn on them. If they do not speak according to this word. And I think about it, friends. Here are a people brought up in the realm of truth. Here are a people brought up under the instruction of God's word. Their parents have brought them up with the, within the framework of the Shema. Behold, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all your strength. That was their upbringing. They knew the blessing came from the living God. They knew blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord. They knew that that's where blessing comes from. That's where fulfillment comes from. But they turned from blessing. They turned from the light to darkness. And maybe you're here this morning and you actually uh, fit the picture. You know, do these comments put a finger right in that place deep inside of you? Because that describes you. You have been uh, confronted by this truth with frequency. Some of you brought up on your grandmother's name. Knowing these truths, knowing that blessing comes from the Lord Jesus Christ. Some of you brought up in your mother's name. Knowing that these truths come from the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's where happiness is found. That's where fulfillment is found. But it hasn't dawned in your heart. Still dark in there. Still confused in there. Still a naking emptiness in there. You say, well, Billy... You know, so much for the season of season of goodwill and joy. <laughs> anything, anything but joyful that all of you said to you so far. You know, what a sorrowful, sorrowful picture, certainly at the end of chapter 8 here. And yes, there's no doubting that. You see, the Bible never disguises how dark things are when you leave God out of your life. The Bible never disguises... How dark things are when God is left out of the picture. States it very, very clearly. And you know as you're reading this. Just at the point where you might anticipate. That God would leave these people in their darkness. After all they had chosen to reject God. After all they had chosen rebelliousness in their hearts. Just that we at the point where we might. Expect God to say, well, let's just close the book on you lot and I'll move on. You know, I'll just consign you to the darkness that you've sought. Go ahead, just get on with it. Just when you might expect him to say that. He says, Isaiah 9 verse 1, nevertheless, the gloom... Will not be upon her who is distressed. 
Oh, praise God, suddenly a light has shone across the darkness. Praise God, suddenly, just when it appears as though the winter time of the soul is about to descend into all of its crushing sadness, the light shines. And it's a dazzling light. And into this sorry predicament of these wanderers who are hard-pressed and hungry, verse 21 of chapter 8, ESV reads, greatly distressed and hungry. Just when they are hungry, famished. Do you see, see the picture? Consumed with fearful gloom at the, at the end of chapter 8. Just in that moment of darkness and gloominess, God comes. And friends, let me remind you, you read your Bible, you will find this Story repeated again and again and again. You can't even get beyond the opening chapters of Genesis. Genesis chapter 3. And you see this. Comes right at the very beginning of the Bible. When Adam and Eve turn their backs on God. Choosing death rather than life. Light rather than darkness. When they turn their back on God and decide to go on their own way. Just at that point when you might have said to yourself, well, what's God going to do here? He's just going to snuff them out. Now God comes and he looks for them in the garden. Adam, where are you? Not because he didn't know where they were and I can't find you. But as we've often pointed out, Adam, where are you in relationship to me, your living God? Yesterday, we were walking together side by side, communing with each other. Where are you now, Adam? Come on, face up to the reality. You're dead to me, Adam. The relationship's dead. Yes, Satan lied. Adam, you did die. You died spiritually. You die physically. And what does God do when he discovers them in their nakedness? He provides a covering for them. A picture of the Messiah who's to come. Providing a covering for us. You see, right from the outset, God is a God of grace. God is the God who comes into the darkness and the emptiness of the experience of men and women and boys and girls. And he brings his light and his joy and his peace to bear upon those lives. And so as we come to chapter 9, listen up. Because if you have not been thinking, you're going to find it worse in the next uh, 10 minutes or so than you are. And you've already found it. But if you are thinking, you'll be okay. So thinking cap on. You'll notice chapter 9 opens with a reference to the past. Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed. As when at first, a reference to the past. He lightly esteemed the land of Sebulun and the land of Naphtali. And afterward, pointing to the future. More heavily oppressed her by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan and the Galilee of the Gentiles. 
It's a little uh, awkward in the New King James Version. This is how the NIV puts it. In the past, he humbled the, the land of Sebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. You say, okay, might have read a little bit awkward in the New King James. Might have read a little better in the NIV. But at the end of the day, what on earth does it mean? Well, it's a reference to the fact that God humbled his people by means of the invading armies of Assyria. That's really all you need to know for the time being. In the past, God done this. And then you will notice in the future, he's going to do something else. In the past, he has humbled his people by the invading armies of the Assyrians. And in the future, he is going to help his people. Now, notice the same context in which the humbling came. The same geographical area will be the geographical area from which the help comes. Now, hopefully this gets your mind working a little bit than the reading from the New Testament helped you earlier. Because this is one of the points in the study of the Bible you know, that you're able to turn around and say to each other, you know, by reading the Bible backwards, uh, we understand this best. So that's why I took you to Matthew uh, chapter 4 and read verses 12 through 16. Now, when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he departed from Galilee and leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the region of Sebulun and Naphtali. Now you say, wow, Sebulun and Naphtali, I've heard that before. And of course you have, we just read it here from Isaiah chapter 9. Uh, and what was Jesus doing in the area of Sebulun and Naphtali? Well, he was actually fulfilling Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. And in fact, that is... What Matthew tells us he was doing. Jesus fulfilled what was spoken by Isaiah the prophet several hundred years before. Matthew says Jesus was fulfilling that. The land of Sebulun and the land of Naphtali by the way of the sea of the Jordan. Uh, beyond the Jordan of the Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who sat in darkness have seen a great light, and upon those who sat in the region of the shadow of death, light has dawned. So, when you read Isaiah 9 verse 1, what in the world does that mean? You're saying to yourself, well, the answer is provided for us by Matthew in chapter 4 of his gospel. Now, those of you who are thinking will have already noticed the fact that Isaiah writes about this using tenses that are in the past. That the appearance of this light has already come. But we have just referenced and read from Matthew chapter 4. And we have discovered from Matthew 4 that the appearing of this light and all of its uh, fullness 
is the arrival of the Lord Jesus Christ. But Isaiah 9 is written several hundred years before Jesus. So why is Isaiah writing about it as if it has already happened? Answer. Because it was so vivid. Because it was so clear. Because it was so certain. In Isaiah's mind, he could write using the prophetic perfect in order to make clear exactly what was going to take place. There is absolutely no doubt that this is going to happen. That's why Peter, when he writes about the prophets, said it was like the prophets, you know, were standing on their tiptoes trying to see the fulfillment of the things that they were writing about. Isaiah was convinced enough of the reality of this to write about it as he did. But he never lived to see the fruition of it. He never lived to see the fulfillment of it. Nevertheless, in Isaiah's mind, that which he describes, he describes as having already taken place. The people who walk in darkness have. Past tense. They have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them the light has dawned. Now, beloved, how has this come about? How is darkness replaced by light? How is war replaced by peace? How is distress replaced by joy? Well, I think those would be relevant questions. Well, notice the answer. Verse 3, you, referring to God, have multiplied the nation and increased its joy. They rejoice before you according to the joy of harvest as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. You see, beloved, this is what God has done. And this is very, very important. It lies at the heart of this prophecy. Who is it that, is, that has caused all of this to take place? Answer, God. God who is the source of light and in whose light alone men and women may see light. Now just as an aside, but this is not entirely unconnected. There is no way for this light to dawn upon a human heart and mind except that God does it. You know, that's why two people can go to listen to the same sermon. They can walk out and one can say, pennies drop. And I understand what the Bible says concerning Jesus. And the other person says, I haven't got a clue what that preacher was talking about. It was all double Dutch. Same sermon, same place, two folks with the same IQ. What's the difference? The difference is God. God has done something. And we are told here that God has done something. The people who walk in darkness have seen a great light. In conclusion, just to summarize verses 2 through 5, and then tonight we'll come back and pick up at verse 6. We'll stick in Isaiah 9, 6 over the next few weeks, 6 and 7. But in verses 2 and 3, we have a description of the good things that are received. And then in verses 4 and 5, we have a description of the bad things that have been removed. What are the 
good things that have been received. He says, you have multiplied the nation and increased their joy. What is God doing? He is keeping his promise to Abraham. He's increasing the nation. You think the nation of Israel? Well, the nation of Israel was a vehicle through which the Messiah ultimately comes. But the true Israel is a spiritual Israel. It's the Israel of God. We are the true Israel, those of us who are the church of Jesus Christ. Those of us who have repented of our sin and trust in Christ. Upon us, the light is dawned. And, uh, you know, God is fulfilling his promises, increasing his people. And right around the globe today, people will be worshipping God. You get to Revelation chapter 7, and you see the consummation of it all. The completeness of the promise of God to Abraham, as John describes multitudes that no one could number from every tribe and people and nation and language. And so you see the story of the Bible. It's a story of the God of grace who comes to men and women, who woos them, wins them, includes them in in his forever family that he's putting together through his son, Jesus Christ. His forever family that's made up of different personalities from succeeding generations and different nations and peoples. What are the good things that are received? You've multiplied the nation, increased their joy. And they rejoice before you like people at harvest time. Or, as he goes on to explain, the victory in, in a, after a battle and the, the spoils of the war are enjoyed and shared out. It's basically a picture of victory. Exuberant joy. And of course, that joy is complete because verse 4 and 5 tells us about the bad things that are removed. Here is a description of liberation and peace. And again, you will notice it comes from beyond the people themselves. They don't bring this about. It's only God that brings this victory about. And surely that's the significance of verse 4 when it talks about Midian's defeat. Here are the Midianites. Well, the Midianites were the ones who were opposing the people of God at the time of Gideon. And God raises up Gideon as a judge. Gideon. Fearful, timid, little Gideon. Gideon. With an army of 32,000 troops. Whom God decided should be reduced by 31,700. And with 300 men. Gideon defeats the Midianites. No, God defeats the Midianites. You see, this is what this is about. You see, the the Midianites would be absolutely amazed that they were routed by 300 men. Now, come on. By the one who was behind the 300 men. So that Gideon would be absolutely clear there is a God in heaven. So that the people of God would be an absolutely no doubt that they weren't particularly special. God wrought the victory, removing the oppression of the oppressor. Bad things removed. Is this just ancient poetry? Is peace an, an illusion? Is peace a notion that we ought to pursue? Is the liberation from oppression a reality that can be enjoyed? Is there an answer beyond the offense in the Middle East? 
between Jew and Palestinian, Jew and Arab? Is there an answer beyond the offence in Ukraine between the Russians and Ukrainians? Isaiah 9 says yes. And Isaiah says yes, there is an answer because the answer is found in Jesus. Jesus who is the only saviour, Jesus who is the only king, Jesus who is the only Lord. Jesus who is the only one who may lift our burdens and verse 5 says all the weapons and uniforms of war will be used as fuel for the fire. Amazing to think about. Brother Tom I think referenced it last week. You know kicks it into the new heaven and new earth as I do myself but part of me and me praying Lord you could bring us about in the world today bring about a revival bring about such a change that what we read in Isaiah chapter 2 verse 4 isn't it and it's written up on the walls of the UN inscribed in the wall they will beat their swords into plowshares and their swords and the pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation any, any longer. They will not learn war anymore. Isn't that, isn't that what, you, what you want to see in this world? An end to war. <coughs> An end to young men being led in their graves. And young widows crying. Children being left orphaned. You want to see an end to that? Isaiah gives us a glimpse of that here. Showed some of the folks on Friday. You know, Jonah's back into the reserves again. Out in exercise. Sends the photographs through with the little squad. With their guns. I'll say back to him in a text. You know, Jonah... Every weapon ever produced by man has been produced to take life. But here, we have a weapon given to us by God, and it brings life. I pray, Jonah, you will learn to wield that weapon more than the weapon that man has placed into your hands. Oh, please pray for Jonah. Pray that God would be merciful to him. Now the bad things removed. You know, on that day, all the weapons of mass destruction will be consumed in a bonfire lit by God's grace. The accoutrements of war will be disposed of. They'll be unnecessary. They will be completely absolute. Why? Because God has purposed it to be so. The answer to the fundamental crisis humanity finds itself in. The darkness, the oppression, the despair, the ignorance, the death. It's all found in Jesus. Not in Jesus the example to follow. Not in Jesus one of many religious leaders. But in Jesus the saviour. Who reconciles man who is at war with God. And reconciles God who is at war with man. 
we say to God, we'll have nothing to do with you. God says, you want a war, you've got it. The answer is found in Jesus Christ who has come to reconcile man to man. And here we are, this mess. Man at war with man, man at war with God, God at war with with man. What's the answer? You're thinking a nuclear bomb. You're thinking thunder and lightning. You're thinking fire and brimstone. What's the answer? A baby. Uh, you weren't expecting that. The answer is a baby. And now we're at verse 6. We'll come back to that tonight in the will of the Lord.